Our sermon passage today comes from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 39. Now, in the, in the passages leading up to this point, the, the pastor who wrote this early Christian sermon, which is what this letter really is, he came to the heart of his message. And the heart, of course, was Jesus. His priestly work and his sacrifice form the foundation of the Christian's hope. But where the emphasis earlier there was on the objective reality of Jesus and his work, the emphasis now begins shifting to address a a vital question. So what? What does Jesus have to do with life today? And so let's pray that God would help us as we come to hear his word. Let's pray together before we read. Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand. That understanding, we may believe. And believing, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 39. In your pew Bibles, this is on page 1007. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we heard the sobering warning passage that came just before this in verses 26 to 31, and it's summarized with the words, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because, his argument is, that living God of steadfast love is also a God of justice. And so the pastor who wrote this letter warns against going on sinning deliberately, that's the phrase he uses, against this God. Now, in the context, Philip helped us understand that what concerns the pastor most is not premeditated sin, of which we are all guilty. He says in verse 19, he knows that because Jesus shed his own blood to cover those sins, we can enter into the presence of God himself with confidence. But Jesus' sacrifice will not cover high-handed sins. Uh, That was the phrase that Philip used. To say it another way, 
if a person is confronted with the wrongness of what they've said or they've done, when such a person deliberately refuses to cling to Christ in faith and repentance, then there is no way to make them right with God. Because deliberately rejecting Jesus, setting Him aside as insignificant, holding one's own way as preferable to Christ, this is to reject the only one who gives us confidence before God. Because God's justice against the wrongness of sin must be satisfied. And if we reject Jesus, treating His atoning blood as worthless, then, on the coming day, when all stand before the judge, we will stand alone with no one to intercede, naked, without the covering of Christ. We will have to answer God's justice by ourselves. And who will be so confident as to say they can handle that? But if the pastor who wrote this letter is stripping away any illusion of confidence for the person who rejects Jesus, then in our present passage, he's helping believers live out their confidence in Christ. This section is really about application. Because the truths about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished aren't just ideas that fill our heads. The realities of Jesus' finished work as sacrifice, his present work as priest, and his coming kingdom are meant to transform your life today in the here and now. In other words, Jesus is not a hypothetical idea for you to entertain on Sundays. He is solid reality who transforms the landscape of our lives. And so if this is an application section, then we're talking about taking action. And that leads us to our, an important question. It's the first question that we're going to consider today. What is God asking you to do? What is God asking you to do? Well, in this section, we see that there are both things to do and things not to do. We see what not to do in verse 35. Look there. He says, do not throw away your confidence. Now, this is kind of obvious, but you can't throw away something that you aren't holding. Now, if what's in your hand is trash, then you won't think twice about tossing it away. But if what you are holding is precious, then you would never throw it away. It's like my son Calvin carrying one of his toy pandas. I think he actually has one today, so this really works. He's loved pandas for years now. Calvin wants to work with them one day. But for now, his love often takes the form of holding his toys close. Now, you might not love pandas as much as Calvin. I'm not sure if anyone in this world loves pandas as much as he does. But his instinct to hold close what he loves, it makes sense, doesn't it? And in the same way, to the extent that we treasure Jesus as our only reason for confidence before the Father, then we will cling to Him. We will hold Him close, enjoying the confidence that He gives us. And so if we're not supposed to throw away our confidence in Christ, it's important to grasp here 
that holding fast to Jesus is the essence of what God is asking you to do. You can see that in the flow of thought from verses 36 to 38. Look at it again. We'll, we'll talk about that need of endurance in a little while. But for now, I want you to see the goal is that we would do the will of God. That's the phrase he uses. Now, if that phrase feels daunting and frighteningly vague, take heart. Because he immediately clarifies what it means, what God's will for you is, he does it precisely in verse 38. He quotes the prophet Habakkuk, where God speaks to his people, telling them what pleases him. God says, My righteous one, the one who's counted right in my sight, my righteous one shall live by faith. What is God asking you to do? The simplest answer, the, the answer in its simplest form is this. Live by faith. Grab hold of Jesus and don't let go. That's it. But if that seems terribly obvious or easy, I want you to take a moment and remember the story of Habakkuk, which is strikingly similar to the story of the Hebrews, to whom this letter was first written. When God told Habakkuk, My righteous one shall live by faith, he spoke those words in dark days. Habakkuk was complaining to God about the profound injustice that he saw within his own nation of Israel. Everywhere he looked, he saw violence and destruction. It seemed to the prophet that evil was winning. But the real heart of his complaint was that God was not doing anything about it. God answered that complaint with the assurance that judgment was already being set in motion, but it would come in the form of Chaldean soldiers who would violently capture God's people and put an end to the injustice of Israel by subduing them with superior military strength. Hearing that that answer from God, maybe you can sympathize with Habakkuk's reply, which was basically to complain again, saying, how is that better? He says that he knows in his head that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, to look at wrong. And so he wonders why God would do nothing while traitors keep on betraying and God's people suffer under the worst that humanity can do. He can't figure out how more injustice can serve to promote justice. And it is precisely at that point that God answers Habakkuk's second complaint with the words quoted in verse 38, My righteous one shall live by faith. I'm convinced that the writer of Hebrews quotes Habakkuk because the prophet's story is so similar to the situation of the Hebrews to whom he was writing. They, too, lived in a time of destruction and suffering and confusion. And so they needed to hear that the kind of faith that they needed was not just a faith that exists while the sun is shining, but a faith that endures 
clings to Christ even on the darkest days. They need the kind of faith that trusts the Father even when His plans hurt our heads and don't make sense to us. And that is the kind of faith that God is asking of us today. A faith that can honestly sing through days of sorrow what we sang just a few moments ago. All is well. Because I know I am Christ's and He is mine. We need the kind of faith that can say in the long night the sun will rise again. A faith that is so confident in Christ that even if God calls us to suffer like Christ, we will endure it. Holding in our hearts the words of the hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right. Holy, His will abideth. I will be still whatever he does, and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to him I leave it all. As we see in verses 32 to 34, sometimes that kind of faith, it gets expressed individually. Like when you personally are the one publicly suffering as a Christian. And sometimes that kind of faith has to be expressed corporately, like when you're willingly showing support and solidarity with others who are mistreated because of their faith in Jesus. Sometimes that hard struggle with sufferings that he talks about in 32, sometimes it happens in circumstances beyond our control like when others attack your faith. There's actually some ancient graffiti that's still visible on, the, on a wall in an old Roman town. It depicts a man with his eyes and an arm raised in worship toward a crucified man with a donkey's head. Around it in Greek are the words, Alexander worships his God. Mocking our crucified Lord, those who drew it also mock Alexander, your brother in Christ, who suffered for his faith. And in the same way today, your faith needs to be expressed both when you suffer alone and when you suffer with God's people. Yes, we live in a culture that often believes our confidence in Christ is foolish But if their jabs, if their taunts come, what will your confidence in Christ enable you to do? Maybe you've seen in the news the the Netflix special that portrays Jesus as a homosexual. While some Christians are calling for a boycott of Netflix, my friend wrote an invitation for believers to respond in in a way that, in my view, anyway, reflects the kind of confidence that we see in this passage. Thinking about this modern equivalent of the graffiti about Alexander's God, my friend suggests, first, we should not be surprised when our king and friend is maligned by those who have sworn allegiance to other kingdoms. They simply do not see yet. Second, Christians are not to be the kind of people who return evil for evil. We should be the kind of people who pray for those who hate our king. 
Pray their eyes are open so they would see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Third, he says, we should be the kind of people who they can make fun of, knowing we will respond with kindness, not with anger or contempt. Will they take advantage of that? Yes. Just as Pilate took advantage of Christ's apparent weakness, we are not fighting the seen, but unseen powers. And fourth, and finally, he suggests, disciples of Jesus are never the victims. Our Lord is always in control. He is never surprised by these things, neither should we be. Breathe. Smile. Spite the devil with the joy of this season. God isn't asking you to defend his honor through boycotts. He's asking you to keep trusting him when his honor and your honor is attacked. And he's asking you to express your faith by reflecting your Savior's own character toward a watching world. Have you considered that sometimes the enduring faith of God's people that is expressed amid suffering in love is actually the means by which God will convince others that the gospel is really true? Countless sinners have been saved because they saw God's people endure suffering with their eyes confidently fixed on Him. So sometimes we need to express our faith in circumstances beyond our control, but sometimes we suffer for our faith because of what we choose for ourselves. We've been talking about this a lot as a church. as we've been, uh, A lot of us have been coming around this book called The J-Curve. I highly commend it. But look at verse 34 at how the believers had compassion on those in prison. They choose to love their imprisoned brothers and sisters, and they suffer for that love. Because they felt compelled to visit their fellow Christians in prison, they identify themselves as Christians in the process, opening themselves up to persecution, to suffering. In a time when the jailers had no responsibility to feed their prisoners, these Christians express their confidence in Christ by loving those who would languish without the care of others. Their faith enabled them to partner with others in pain. And what God is asking of you, too, is that you would express the kind of faith that loves others, even at great cost to yourself. His will is that we would follow Jesus, saying what Jesus himself said earlier when he came in the flesh to rescue us. Earlier in chapter 10, Jesus said to the Father, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. For Jesus, doing God's will meant his death. But he offered himself up as the sacrifice to sanctify you once and for all. And so why would it surprise us if God invites us to die even a little death for the sake of someone else? Of course, our death can't atone for sin like Jesus' did. But we can be confident that when we follow Jesus into this way of love, even if it includes pain for us, then God will not fail 
to use our loving sacrifice of self to accomplish His good purposes, both in the lives of others and our own. What does the word say? For to us, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are confident that we are the Lord's. Living with this kind of confidence is exactly what the book of Hebrews is all about. This word, confidence, appears all throughout the letter. And to speak of confidence is to describe the essence of faith itself. And so God is calling us to hold fast to Christ, living with a deep and lasting confidence in Him that extends into every facet of life, a kind of confidence that endures even through painful circumstances. But if God is asking that of us, that leads me to the second big question that we have to consider. What keeps you from living confident in Christ now? Remember, this letter to the Hebrews was written because these believers were struggling to believe that following Jesus every day was really worth it. Like I said almost a year ago when we began exploring Hebrews, the pastor is writing to people who are hurting, to people who are tired, to people who are doubting. Because long ago, these Jewish people recognized Jesus to be the Christ, the rescuer that was promised to their fathers. And setting their hope in Him, they left behind the old sacrifices for sin given through Moses, believing that Jesus had made a better sacrifice. They left behind the safe harbor of Judaism, a religion recognized and actually protected under Roman law. They left it behind, trusting that in Jesus, God was advancing the story of redemption. But now, years later, they're finding it hard to believe that the gospel of Jesus is true when the Roman authorities take their homes, when soldiers seize fellow church members, when people that they love are taken and sawn in two because they bear the name Christian. They're wondering if the message that they heard about Jesus is actually reliable, since salvation looks way different than they expected. And so they're tempted. There are people like you and me who are tempted to believe that the faith that they placed in Jesus is misplaced faith, because life has gotten harder, not easier, since putting their hope in Him. And here we remember why we need this letter today. Because here and now, we too experience dark days that threaten to shake our confidence in Christ, making it hard to live by faith. When individuals, uh, when individually or, or together, we endure attacks from the outside. When loving a sinner like your husband or wife is more difficult than you ever imagined. When you struggle at work because you're the only one who seems to care about, what's doing, about doing what's right instead of doing what's easy, or when you've looked for work and the positions just aren't there. When, you, uh, when your children raised in the faith are wandering far from it, when we as Christians, uh, when we find ourselves being set aside by the dominant culture, when we feel let down and disillusioned with the church, 
when God's promises of cosmic restoration seem slow in coming true. In all of these difficult circumstances, that skeptical question can still linger in our hearts, even if we never ask it out loud. Is this what salvation looks like? And beneath that question stirs a subtle form of unbelief, wondering if maybe, maybe, our confidence in Jesus is misplaced. There is a kind of person whose response to suffering is to shrink back from Jesus. Today, like in the first century of the church, there are people whose confidence in Christ is based more on their circumstances than on Jesus' finished work as sacrifice and present work as priest and His coming kingdom. And so when their present life doesn't match their expectations, then their confidence in Jesus falters. And they look elsewhere for something to fix their broken lives. The irony, the dark irony there, is that by shrinking back from Jesus, they're pulling away from the only source of life. As Philip said last week, by renouncing Him in an effort to save themselves, they confirm their own destruction. But if you recognize today that living by faith is sometimes harder than it seems, if your confidence in Christ is shaken by the difficult days that you are facing, if you hear the writer say in verse 36, you have need of endurance, and your heart groans in agreement, then I would say to you again, do not, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Return, return again to the gospel and remember why Jesus is worthy of your confidence. And that brings us to the last question for us to consider. How does remembering the gospel enable us to live confident in Christ each day? Well, to answer that, did you notice that the writer to the Hebrews is confident that his hurting friends will continue to live by faith? He says it in verse 39. We are not those of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, literally preserve their lives. He's sure that their faith will endure, and it's because he's already seen it endure in the past. That's why he opens this section in verse 32 with a call to remembrance, because it's easier to do something difficult if you've already done it before. So he puts courage into their hearts by reminding them of their own story, how they lived by faith already in the past. Already, he says, they've endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And the reason why they did it then is the reason why they can do it today. It's because they believed then that the gospel was really true. The stories are true. And so they did bold and difficult and loving things with great confidence in Christ. Look at verse 34. The reason why they could joyfully accept the plundering of their property in the past is because they knew 
Such a confident word. They knew that they themselves had a better and abiding possession in Christ. It's not that they were happy to have all of their belongings taken, but rather, as one writer puts it, they put up with the loss and they continued to be joyful because they counted having Christ as better than having anything else in the world. And so the writer urges them to remember how their confidence in Christ supported them in the past so that same confidence could carry them through today. He urges them to lift their eyes above their present troubles to see Christ again, to believe again that there is a great reward for those who cling to Him because the promise of God in verse 36 is eternal life for all who live by faith in Jesus. And it is no different for you here. It's no different for you here. Already you have passed through so much hardship. I have seen you walk confidently through the valley of the shadow of death. I have seen you suffer at work because of unrighteous bosses, who keep on, but you keep on working like Jesus is your boss. I have seen, I have seen people hurt you with careless words, and selfishness, but you keep on trying to love them. Why did you do that? Why did you do these difficult things? Isn't it because you knew that your shepherd was with you in that valley? Isn't it because you know that Jesus sees your work and you are really working for him? Didn't you didn't you love difficult people because Jesus loved you when you weren't so lovable? Didn't you do all of this because you were convinced that the realities of Jesus' finished work as sacrifice and present work as priest and His coming kingdom are the truest things in this world? Let's return to that kind of confidence every day Today and tomorrow, let's be the kind of people who keep on clinging to Christ and living out our confidence in Him. Because in Jesus, we see that God is the kind of God who is able to use even great injustices to accomplish His good purposes for His people. God used the greatest injustice the world has ever seen, the death of His sinless Son, to satisfy His justice against us and to bring us into His kingdom. And so we can trust. We can trust that He is working in and through the injustices that we suffer. And when He comes, He will right all of these wrongs. And He is coming. He is coming. As God promises in verse 37, yet a little while. And the coming one will come and will not delay. What an encouraging description of who our God and Savior is. He is the coming one. Do you think of him that way? Do you call to mind that description of him when the pains of this life rise? Let me encourage you today, on the cusp of a new year, let me encourage you to begin cultivating the habits that will help you remember that truth in the coming year. 
Because you need to train your heart and your mind to remember the coming king and his kingdom. That's what will help you, like my friend Matt, to respond in a Christ-like way when suffering comes. But to do that, you need to keep yourself close to others who want to do the same, who want to train themselves in the same way. Because we alone, by ourselves, we are weak. We are forgetful people. But together we can stir each other up to love and to good works, to remember the gospel for ourselves. And so let me ask you this simple question for you to reflect on with your family, with, uh, with your friends after today. What will you do this year to be in the Word with other people? What will you do? I want you to do it because I want you to enter into this new year with confidence. Confidence not because this year will be better than the last. It might not be. As another pastor said, here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. But then he adds, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because although we do not know what hardships or pain await us this year, we do know the coming one. He came once to deal with sin and to give us confidence before God. And he will come again for those who eagerly wait for him so that we can live together with him always. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your word. Your word alone is what gives us confidence in your presence. But Father, as you have given us confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, knowing that our hearts have been sprinkled clean from evil conscience and that our bodies have been washed with pure water. Father, help us to live with this kind of confidence today that we would be the kind of people who could even endure suffering, both alone and together, the suffering that we choose and the suffering that comes to us. Lord, let us be the kind of people that endure it all because of our confident faith in Christ and who He is for us. Father, do this not just for our good, but do it for Your glory so that many may see and may fear You and turn to You in hope, finding their own confidence in Christ our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.